We're going to finish up chapter 13. If you remember, we talked last week about consecration. What is consecration? What does it mean to consecrate your life to Christ? What does it mean to consecrate your, what you own, what is yours, what God has stewarded you with? What does that mean to consecrate it to Christ? We began to see that the reality of the Exodus narrative that we have been covering over these past months, it presents us with the idea that consecration is not just an outward act, it is a, an inward heart devotion. So the heart devotion works itself out into the outward actions, and not vice versa. We also saw last week that this idea of consecration, it always takes place in a context. The context we saw from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 last week was the context of redemption. That the people of Israel were called to give, to consecrate of their firstborn, whether it was man or animal, to consecrate them to the Lord because of the redemption God provided His people out of Egypt. It was never consecration for the sake of consecration. It was never consecration just in a vacuum dissected from the redemption of what God provided. And we talked last week that a lot of times in our Christian life, we think in terms of... I. I need to give my life to Christ. I need to do this for Christ. Whatever it is, we think of it in isolation outside of the context of what God has done for us. Because what God has done for us is so much greater than what we could ever do for Him. We also talked last week that consecration... When we consecrate ourselves and our things to God, what it is, is that it is an acknowledge of God's ownership. We acknowledge God's ownership because of what He has done for us, because of who He is, because of our identity, our newfound identity that we have in Jesus. That is what fuels our consecration. So we sought last week to begin by looking at three aspects of what it means to consecrate. What does consecration mean? And last week, the first thing that we saw that consecration means is it means remembering. You see, without this vital aspect of remembering, we are not in the proper place of being able from the heart to consecrate ourselves to God. We remember we saw um, in verses 3 and 4, what do we remember? We specifically remember God's saving act. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the saving act that the people of Israel were always called to remember. I mean, you read the prophets. They're always calling the people, to remember what God did for them. Before Moses dies in the book of Deuteronomy, he's saying, remember what God did for you, taking you out of Egypt. It is to mark your lives radically. It is to change your thinking. And we see the same thing in verses 3 and 4. So if consecration means remembering, specifically we remember God's saving act. And in remembering God's saving act, consecration, we remember that saving act by memorializing that saving act. And God here in verses 5 to 7, He tells the people when they enter the land that God gives them, that they are to memorialize God's saving act by partaking of what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to get rid of all of the leaven in all of their house 
Not a single item with leaven in it was to be found. And and that took time to go through all the cupboards, so to speak. To go through the house to make sure everything was prepared. Why? Because this action was memorializing, it was cementing in their hearts what God had done. That they had to leave Egypt so speedily that the bread wasn't, didn't even have time for yeast to make it rise. That is how sure God's saving work is for His people. And I wonder how we are doing in our lives memorializing God's saving act. It was proactive for the people to do this. We have to order our lives. We have to order our thinking and ask God to order our thinking and our ways in such a way that God is memorialized in our lives. That God and what He has done in His saving act is cemented in our hearts. I mean, that has to do with how we structure our day. That has to do with how we structure our family. How we prepare our hearts to come and worship together in this assembly. As we talked last week, that has to do with every sphere of our lives. How are we memorializing those reminders that my identity is found now in Christ? This morning, we're going to continue to look at the meaning of consecration in light of our salvation. And we're going to continue to look and cement this theme into our hearts that only God can rescue and redeem. Let's pray this morning. Lord, would you take your word this morning and do what you've promised to do? God, you've promised that your word will not return void. You've promised, God, that the Holy Spirit will use your word in each of our hearts. We ask you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue this theme that consecration means remembering, we remember specifically God's saving act. One of the ways we do that is we memorialize that saving act in our heart in the way that we prepare our hearts and order our lives. But there's a third aspect to remembering that I want us to to look at from verses 8 to 10. You see, remembering also has to do with proclaiming God's saving act. We remember what God has done for us when we are also proclaiming what God has done for us. Why? Because from the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this, what, this event of the Exodus was so to characterize God's people here in the Old Testament that w- what they did was ordered around it. The very year is now, a, God says, this is the beginning of years. This is to mark your lives now. And it even goes down to the things that they tell their children. Look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You see, when we proclaim God's saving act, whether we are proclaiming it to our children, whether we are proclaiming it to a co-worker, to a neighbor, to a fellow believer, encouraging them in the faith, When we proclaim God's saving act, it is first of all a personal testimony. God knows that there's going to come a day as they are preparing to rid the house of all leaven that the children in the home are going to say, Daddy, Mommy, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? And God says, this is what you're to tell them because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
Do you note the personal pronouns there? What he did for me? When I came out of Egypt? This was not just for the first generation of Israelites that exited Egypt. This was to be passed down. So future generations were to personalize this just as the very first generation that walked out of Egypt. God did this for me. Listen, if you want the second generation to personalize the saving work of Christ, it has got to be demonstrated, first of all, through you as a parent. Or whoever you are, whether you're a parent or not a parent, and and you have children that are looking up to you, a, a future generation that looks to you. How many times... Do we do things in the name of Christ? Again, without a context. Mommy, Daddy, why do we go to, gotta go to church this morning? I'm so tired. Is our answer because, Billy, Christ has saved me. If your spouse is saved, Christ has done a work in Daddy and Mommy's heart. And we are going to worship our great and saving God. And you have the the opportunity to partake of that with us. Not because we have to. Not because, oh, I'm signed up to serve that today, so I better be there. Not because I'm on the schedule for something. But because of what God has done for me. Have we lost the personal element to our salvation? I mean, that sounds even ridiculous to even ask it. When we're dealing with salvation that's given to us, have we lost the personal aspect to that? But sadly, I think we have. You see, we proclaim God's saving act, first of all, as a personal testimony, but get verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. You see, this is not just a personal testimony. This is to be a life directive for God's people. This is to to be the focus of of God's people's lives. God is not saying literally that they are to have a sign written out on their hand or to have something in between their eyes. Although later we read that religious leaders, they did take that literally and they would put something between their eyes. But that is not what God is saying in, in a literal sense. He is saying this is to always be before you no matter what. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, we read of this same idea. This is a life directive. It's at the forefront of all we do. It's at the forefront of all we see. It's at the forefront of all that we say. You see, folks, the only way that verse 8 is going to be a reality in our lives, and, and our children can tell when things come from the heart, Versus it's just an empty routine. The only way that verse 8 is going to come true in its true intent, if verse 9 is true, that this is the focal point of our lives. You see, if you have children this morning, your children can, can look and they, and they see, whether you realize it or not, a bunch of your faults. But you know what? When we admit those faults and we point those faults to Jesus and we tell our kids, you know what, we are not perfect. You know what, I yelled at you. I yelled at mommy. I yelled at daddy and that was wrong and that shows that I'm a sinner in need of grace just like you are. Our children can deal with the fact that we are broken parents if we are pointing them to Christ through it. If we are personalizing God's redemption and we are pointing 
them to Christ because our lives, even amidst the messiness and the brokenness, our lives are lived in the context of God's redemption. How are you leading your children? I came across this, this, uh, this statement. I shared it with uh, Pastor Dennis this week. Uh, this is in the context of youth leaders. Um, but I think we can, we can apply this as parents or as individuals that work with the future generation. I thought this was so true. This individual says this. Again, this is the context of youth leaders, but let's apply this to your situation, wherever, whatever it may be. He says this. Youth leaders, don't undersell your students. They are learning algebra and biology and trigonometry they can handle some theology. Ouch. You may say, well, my kid's not in high school yet. They're learning to read. My kids are telling me science facts and history facts that I don't even know in fifth grade. They can learn. They can handle the truths of God's word. But do we know the truths of God's word to pass it down. See, I think that's the foundational element that gets missing, that we are reproducing who we are. You see, God's actions undergird everything. Again, at the end of verse 9, why is this set to be the forefront of our lives? For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Everything in the Christian life is based upon first and foremost what God has done ultimately through Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, there's lots of commands in the Bible, aren't there? But when we read the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, God never starts a command and says, just do it. They didn't have, even have Nikes back then. He never says, just do this. God always prefaces His commands by what He has done. Therefore, as a response to that, this is how we are to react. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to, to conduct ourselves. In all of Paul's epistles, he starts the first half of his book with the glorious, what we call the indicatives or the statements of fact what God has done for us through Jesus before he ever gets to what is called the imperatives or the commands of, okay, now this is how we're to live. Have we reversed it? Are we living out the commands without the statement of facts of what Jesus has done? Without the realities of the gospel? You see, we're to proclaim God's saving act as a personal testimony to the next generation, as a life directive that we, first of all, have cemented in our own hearts and are passing that along. And then verse 10, it says simply a command to be followed. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. There's no skipping here. Later in Israel's history, we see that they did forget all of this. And, and years and years went by when they did not celebrate the Passover, did not celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They forgot. Folks, are we, have we forgot the glorious rescue that God has provided us? This morning, we have let smaller things, smaller circumstances that seem huge because we're right in front of the building looking up, and we've caused that to cloud out the context that we are called to live in. You see, consecration, first and foremost, always means we're remembering. But second aspect of consecration that I want to, to share with you this morning is that consecration means setting apart. 
See, consecration, if we are to consecrate our lives to God, it does manifest itself in an outward reality of action. And, and literally, that word consecration means to set something apart. And in the context here, God is simply asking the people to set apart what is already His. We already talked about God's ownership. A setting apart of what is God's. You see, the firstborn, as we saw in verse 2, are God's by right of the redemption that He provided. Look at verses 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and He shall give it you. Now, we have to stop right there. And we have to see that again, he's, he's reiterating what he has already said in verse 5. You see, God is promising that the work that he is doing is going to continue. He brought them out of Egypt, but he brought them out to bring them to a place. He's going to do what he said, just like when he said he would bring them out of Egypt. Folks, this is so important for us to remember because as we talked about last week, God's saving work in our life is not done yet. God has brought us out of Egypt, so to speak, out of slavery to sin. He has cleansed us and given us his righteousness. But we are not home yet. There is more to what God is doing. And God, again, in verse 11, promises them, again, this is what I am going to do for you. And in verse 12, when they get to that land, verse 12 says, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. This is a very odd passage, is it not? We're thinking, what in the world is going on here? Well, we have to remember, if we're going to understand this passage, that God is telling His people, again, under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament... He's telling his people, this is how you will memorialize my saving work. The firstborn are gods by right of redemption. You remember that the firstborn of Israel were delivered. You remember the death angel goes through the land of Egypt. And because the firstborn of Israel were delivered, because the blood was on the doorpost, the firstborn are to all be God's. They are God's possession. He spared them. They are His. And you remember we talked last week that there are several aspects to this firstborn that, that Israel, as individuals, they have their own firstborn children. But Israel, a people group, they are God's firstborn son. So the people themselves were to be set apart, consecrated to God, and the individuals in acknowledging that are to set apart their own firstborn to God, both of man and of animal. It's so interesting that in verse 12, this, word, this very word set apart is the same word used in chapter 12 in verse 13 and verse 23 that say, pass over. In verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and of beast. And then verse 13, that the blood will be a sign. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Same exact word as setting apart of the firstborn. Verse 23, once again in chapter 12, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door 
will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You know what this shouts out to us? That again, we set apart to God because of what he has first done for us. Folks, giving to God in whatever that area is, our very lives, our time, the first fruits of our resources, uh, whatever it may be, it is not a laborious thing. It is an act of worship. It is in response to what God has done for us. It is but a small reflection of what God has given us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. What a great picture of what God has done. God freed them from being a slave to a man, Pharaoh. He freed them to be servants now of God. To acknowledge that and to set themselves apart for God. To set their firstborn sons, the firstborn of the animals to God. We read later in the Old Testament, they were to give of the first fruits of their harvest to God. They were to do all of this as an act of worship that we have been given a new identity. We were once servants to a foreign master and now we are servants of God. How would our consecration in whatever area of our lives that maybe you're even struggling with this morning, how would it be different if we realized the context of redemption? You see, the firstborns are God's by right of redemption and the people are to act accordingly. This was an identity reminder to them. All the firstborn of your, uh, verse 12, you shall set apart all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Uh, it goes to the donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb. In other words, if, an, if the firstborn of your animals in this context of a donkey, um, if it is not redeemed with a sacrificial lamb, the animal itself was to be killed. And of course, every firstborn of man, every human child, all of the male sons, they shall be redeemed. They would not be sacrificed like an animal. They would be redeemed with money. This is the very thing we read of in Luke 2. The Christmas story. When Mary and Joseph take Jesus Himself, God's only Son, and they go to the temple, they are giving the payment um, uh, when Simeon sees that they are giving the payment of redemption to God. This was to be their way of life. That even though the pagans, they would live for the, their own gods, they would indulge their flesh, they would live for themselves, and what would, what would possibly be an act of fleshly worship to their gods, God's people were to act different. They were to acknowledge Him. They set apart what was God's, and verses 14 to 16 show us that this was a setting apart again that was a testimony it was an example. In other words, this was not only for their own worship, this was for the worship of their children of the next generation. See in verse 14, this testimony of redemption. Again, God goes back to the, to the children. I think this is so insightful of the importance of of passing the faith to the future generation. It says, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? I mean, imagine, here, here you have the father 
The first, uh, the, the animal gives birth, the firstborn of that animal, and rather than taking it and feeding it and, let it and letting the mother nurture it, he takes it and he sacrifices it. Instead, the son observes this sacrifice, and, it, and the son says, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Again, a testimony to God. Notice in verse 14 that the context changes a little bit. The pronouns change. And uh, from earlier, it's, uh, the, the father says, I was redeemed. I was taken out of the land. But now in verse 14, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8 says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, there's a pronoun change because it would be the responsibility of the parents to rid the house of leaven. But here... The son observes this setting apart of the firstborn males. And the father says, this is what we do. Because son, I also, you also are the Lord's. And you were redeemed. We gave you to the Lord. We paid the redemption price in honor to what God has given. Once again, I want to ask you, how are you doing with this? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. In fact, in verse 14, when it says, in t- when in time to come, literally, uh, that reads, tomorrow... When your sons ask you, what does this mean? Whatever stage of life you may be in, maybe you're here today, um, you're not married, you don't have children. Are you determining in your heart that we are going to build our home on the truths of the Word of God and our children are going to see it from us? We are not going to depend on other people to do what we are called to do. Is your heart attitude going to be one that my act of worship to God in all of my life, I am doing it for my Lord, but my children will see what a broken but dedicated life to Christ looks like. They're going to see what it means to overcome the priorities that can get a life out of whack. And they're going to see us work through, though it's messy, we need to reprioritize our life. We need to reprioritize our values. We need to to rethink what we are doing. Why? Because our lives are to the Lord. He has redeemed us. And now because we have been bought with such a great price, We are not servants of men. We are servants of God. What does this look like in your life? You see, verse 15 again gives the reason for all of this. God did what was impossible. God redeemed. And then again in verse 16, a total devotion. It shall be as a mark on your hand or as frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Can can Moses 
be any more specific through what God tells him of what the foundation for all of the Christian life is. I mean, if God is saying this to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, um, how much greater now that the fullness of Christ has come and the New Covenant has come, are we to order everything in our lives in the context of what He has done for us? Maybe that means for you going home today with your spouse and rethinking the way that you are living your lives rethinking the way that you are handling your finances, rethinking the time that you are investing things into, rethinking your heart devotion to God. Again, I want to read you a a quotation that I just came across this week. This is about athletes and celebrities, but I think we can apply this to many other things, but we, we get so caught up in dreams for our children. Listen to this. There is a .0296%, don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, a 2.96% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a .0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity there is 100% certainty that your child will stand before Jesus. What are you teaching your children? We may say, well, the odds will be higher if we can find a good trade for our children that they can make a career out of. You know what? That's great. But that still doesn't take out that 100% certainty. What are we going to invest in the lives of our families? Consecration means remembering, number one. Number two, consecration means setting apart. And number three, as we end this section of chapter 13 and we take a pause on this Exodus series before we close out the last two chapters next year, consecration and here's where it really gets tough it means trusting we come to a bit of a transition in the in the the uh the chapter here when we get to verse 17 god is is giving instructions for the feast of unleavened bread he's giving instructions on redeeming the firstborn males of both animals and their children And now he kind of picks up where chapter 12 leaves off in verse 42 that the people are exiting Egypt. And I think we can see here that consecration still is involved in this passage and it means trusting. What are we to trust if we if, if this type of trust is involved in consecration. Let's read verses 17 and 19. This is so interesting to me. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. We stop right there. And we first of all have to realize from this interesting account that trusting, what consecration means when we speak of trusting is that we are specifically trusting in God to make good on His promises. So we just, came, we just came through a passage where twice it's emphasizing God saying, I'm going to bring you to that land. I haven't just taken you out of Egypt to let you wander. But, in, but then we read in verse 17, when Pharaoh uh, let the people go, God didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. You see, if we uh, 
put up the next slide, I think there's a, uh, yeah, we must trust the path God has chosen for us. Uh, this is just a satellite image of the land of Egypt. I brought my little laser pointer. It was easier when we had a screen back there. I don't know if this will work. No, it shoots right off. It doesn't work. Is there a technological reason for that? Okay. Well, in this area... In that greenish area, you have the, the, the Nile Delta where all the wa- you see all the green uh, along the Nile, um, and then you see where the Nile kind of goes off in many directions, all of the, the vegetation uh, there. Um, well, the people set off from there, and unfortunately, I don't have the laser pointer. The way of the Philistines, just to let you know, uh, I can't get it, you see the sea up there. Uh, on the top, the way of the Philistines outli- is the land outlining the sea. God, and, and then to the right is getting into the land of Canaan. So it would have been, wouldn't, wouldn't it have made sense? They're right there on the edge of that greenish part to the right uh, from Ramses. And nobody knows the sure Exodus route. Uh, but rather than just going along that the, the edge of the sea and going right into Canaan, God leads them down. He leads them through um, the Red Sea. And then they are hanging out down here and going here. And most people say Mount Sinai is somewhere around there. Um, doesn't that make the most sense just to take a quick beeline? But that's not what God does. You see, we must trust the path God has chosen for us, even when that path doesn't make sense. See, so many times we say, God, I want to consecrate my life to you. All that that I am, all that I have is yours, but then we go and things start to not make sense. And we start to doubt But God's paths are always best. And not only that, but in every path, and we've got to get this, in every path, God knows our heart. It was actually, and this amazes me, it was actually an act of mercy that God didn't let them just go right up into the land of Canaan. What does the verse say? It says, For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You know what that tells me? My God knows me. Your God knows you. He has a perfectly laid out plan for all of his children. It doesn't make sense. It's usually not the easiest route from A to B and the quickest route. God knows us, however. He knows our fears. He knows our strengths. And He is completing the work that He has set out for us according to His perfect understanding of His children. You see, we must trust the path God has chosen for us. And then in verse 18, we see, uh, start to see the route that they took. And that leads us that we trust in God to make good on His promises. First of all, because we trust the path God's chosen for us. That man, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen this path, but God did, and I trust Him. But we also acknowledge that God's ways are always orderly. God had a set route for his people to take for set reasons. A set route for set reasons. God has a set route for us for set reasons. In fact, it was not until the people of Israel rebelled in the wilderness and did not move forward where God was leading, it was not until that point that they wandered around aimlessly in the desert. But verse 19, we also see 
this interesting, almost side note, says Moses took the bones of Joseph, for Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. You know what this shows us? God's timing is always best. Joseph knew what was going to happen. Moses, by inserting this into this narrative, is saying God is true. Just like God promised a land to Abraham, Joseph trusted that. Jacob trusted that. Isaac trusted that. We can trust it too that God is making good on His promises. And God's timing is best. Then we continue reading. We see not only that trusting, that consecration means trusting. That trust is a trust in God to make good on His promises, but also it is a trust in God to lead every step of the way. Every step. God doesn't come in to periodically check on you. How many of you remember uh, the, the awkward days of you, you get a new job and, uh, and uh, in my context, in my thinking, uh, more of a, a hands-on job, manual labor job, you're new at the job, your supervisor tells you what you need to do, and then he says, okay, in about an hour or two, I'm going to check, check in on you, see how it's going, and man, it's not five minutes till <laughs> you're, you're, you're at, I'm lost, and you're thinking, when's he going to come back? And how's he going to think, I'm not producing here. God does not just simply periodically check in with us. He is there every step of the way. Jeremiah puts it this way, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, verse 20 shows us this. It says, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. Now that doesn't really mean a lot to us because again, um, we don't even know for sure, theologians don't even know for sure where those cities are located. But what it does tell us is that God's people are on a pilgrimage. You see, we too, like the children of Israel, are on a pilgrimage to the promised land. This promised land, however, is a forever promised land. It is one that because the Spirit of God has been put inside of us at salvation, that we will never be taken out of that promised land. It is a land that God says there is no more sin, there is no more darkness, there is no more Satan. And we are traversing that wilderness as we speak. But as we traverse that wilderness, we have a great model for us because like, the Israel, like Israel of old, here in Exodus, God also goes before us. Verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night night. Folks, why do we move forward in the Christian life? Is it because of us? Is it because of your own strength? Is it because of your own wisdom? Is it because by your own hand somehow you have earned something that you are your own Savior? No. It is because of our God who goes before us. In the day, like a pillar, or like a pillar of cloud, In the night, a pillar of fire. And notice at the end of that verse that they may travel by day and by night. You know, as we're on this pilgrimage, it's easy sometimes to travel in the day. But we all face the night. And even in the night, just as God proved to to Pharaoh I, unlike your gods, have complete control both in the day and in the night when your sun god supposedly goes down into the underworld. I cannot be limited 
I am the God of both day and night. And folks, you may be going through a night right now, but God's light is enough to guide you. I like what one individual says. He says, the God of the great moving pillar is still the same, still conducting the pilgrimage of his people. Though he has removed the visible sign, he will never remove his presence or fail to make his, his ways known to those who watch and wait. You see, folks, we can trust God to lead every step of the way, not just as because we're on a pilgrimage, not just knowing that God goes before us, but verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. You see, God will not forsake us. Folks, isn't this a God that you can entrust yourself to? Isn't this a God that you can say, Lord, would you take all of me Father, everything that I have, it is yours. God, I want you to continue to do that work that you have started in my life at salvation. I want you to work in my life, in the life of my family, in the lives of those who are watching me. As the song that we sing says, As we read Exodus 13, we are to behold our God. This is who our God is. This is what he has done. Now the question is, how will we respond? Because as we've seen throughout this series, only God can rescue and redeem. Let's pray.